We are back in the book of 1 John, and just to do a quick review, this was written by the Apostle John, who was also known as the Apostle of Love, and he also wrote the Gospel of John. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Apostle of John wrote the last of those. And the Gospel of John, if you look back, was written for an evangelistic purpose. He wrote that so many would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John chapter 20, verse 31. It was written to bring people to faith, and the cool thing about that is that many people in our church, multiple people in our church, were brought to faith by reading the Gospel of John, so it served its purpose. This letter of 1 John, though, on the other hand, is not written so that it would bring people to Christ, but it's so that those who are already brought to Christ might be strengthened and established in their faith, in our faith. It's not so that you may have faith, but so that you would enjoy that faith. You would have assurance of that faith. You would have confidence. And when we're talking about assurance of salvation, that's sort of a Christianese type of term. We're not talking about something that is irrelevant, but with assurance, we're talking about security, confidence, and joy in our faith. Because it's possible to come to Jesus and not have assurance of salvation. Christianity in that situation, therefore, is full of burden. You're not enjoying its privileges. There's no joy there. One pastor named Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, you feel like you're carrying your salvation rather than your salvation carrying you. There's a big difference there, isn't there? I think we can all relate to that idea. And so how important is it to be assured of the privileges that we've received as believers? To know that I'm a child of God. How burdensome would it be to always be afraid that you're not really sure? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Constantly feeling condemned. Never feeling at rest. Always feeling like a failure. John calls us to look outwards and look upwards to the God of grace and the God of our salvation and realize, again, what he's done for us. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our advocate. He is our defender. And he is greater than our condemning hearts. He is full of grace, and his grace is greater than our sin. And to know these truths, to have the gospel in your heart, That's what motivates us. That's what lifts up our heart. We have confidence and joy. I don't live Christianity as if it's just a big burden that I can't escape, but rather we're carried along by the grace of Jesus Christ that transforms every part of our lives. It's his grace that will carry us through the good and the bad. And if this is the case for you, if the gospel is in your heart, let me remind you it's because of the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in me and I in him through the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not actually my job as a preacher or as a human to give you assurance of salvation. It's the Spirit who will do that. He anointed you. He illuminated these truths and brought you to realize what the cross of Jesus Christ actually means. And it's the ministry of the Spirit that will continue to bring you this confident assurance. We all were blind, but now we see. And it's because of the Spirit that we can see. The Spirit 
opened our eyes. The Spirit opened your eyes to see the beauty, the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that did that. And now through the Spirit, the Father and the Son have come to dwell in your heart. They dwell in us. We have fellowship with them. My whole life is a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And when God comes into our lives, He will clean it up. He will clean up our hearts. He will clean up our entire lives. He will rearrange everything. All the messiness He will restore to make our hearts a godly dwelling place for Him, a holy place for His presence. That's what the Spirit is doing. He calls us, especially in the book of 1 John, to live in the light for God is light and to live in love for God is love. Those are like the two big ideas of the book of 1 John. And John, remember, he's like a grandpa at this point. He's probably in his 80s, maybe 90s, and he's pretty repetitive in this letter. He circles back to the same things over and over again, but it's a reminder for us that we're never beyond the basics. We're talking about loving one another again. This is maybe the third or fourth time it's come up in this letter, and each time we go deeper and deeper into it, he adds depth to this idea. And there's a temptation, especially if you've grown up in the church, where you hear these truths that you've already heard before and you think you've arrived. And we shut it off. We know this. I've heard this before. And we can hear this message again and again, and we should remember, just because we've heard it doesn't mean we've lived it. And don't ever be deceived into thinking just because a preacher preaches it doesn't that means they've lived it. It just means they've preached it. Don't be deceived into thinking this is stuff that we're beyond. J.I. Packer says, if our theology, if our learning does not quicken the conscience and soften the heart, it actually hardens both. And that's a good challenge for us because hearing the same thing over and over can either soften your heart more and more Or it'll harden your heart because you'll just get used to not living it out. And so I pray that it'll soften our hearts today. Let's read 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read all of uh, chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. This is God's word, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, 
so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so starting in verse 7 through 8, we're called once again to love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. And again, this is what John was known for, the apostle of love. Even, it's said that even when he couldn't preach, when he was too old, when he was too tired to stand up at the pulpit at, to preach, he would be carried around the church, and the whole time he would just be saying, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And the English doesn't have the depth that the Greek has. You know, in our society, love has lost a lot of meaning. It can mean all types of things. For example, this two weeks ago, one of my worst nightmares, or the start of one of my worst nightmares as a father, my daughter shares with us, all the boys in our class have crushes on all the girls. She's first grade. And I asked her, what does that mean for them to have a crush on you? And he's like, it means they love me. And not by coincidence, we signed her up for jujitsu that week. <laughs> And I don't know how many pastors I've heard go through the four different words of Greek. It almost feels cliche, like something cool to do to teach the four words of Greek, and you've probably heard it before, but I think it's actually helpful here. In Greek, the word love has multiple meanings. There's eros, which is sentimental, emotional, sexual love. That's the love between a man and a woman. There's storge, which is family love, usually describes the love of a parent for their child. There's phileo, where we, you probably know, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and that describes friendship and companionship. And lastly here, we have the word agape love. And this word was actually not used very often during biblical times. It wasn't really part of their day-to-day -day vocabulary, but the apostles used this word often, and so God poured new meaning into this, where it's now describing God's unconditional love. It's a love that gives up what is most precious to you for the benefit of another. It's self-sacrificing love. And we could say, if we want to simplify it, that eros or sexual love could be selfish and be all about take. Phileo can be about give and take. But agape love is all about give. And the Bible never describes love as primarily a feeling. That's how our society mainly talks about love. You fall in love. Or love is in the air. It's like a virus that you catch. It's something that happens to you. You fall in love. You fall out of love. And maybe one of the biggest false ideas when it comes to romance is that you're going to meet some soulmate who is going to be perfect. You'll always be bursting with feelings for him or her. Never any doubts. Never any bad days. Never any times where they make you feel hurt. We're in love, but that won't last. God is saying, look around, give to your brothers and sisters, meet their needs, sacrifice for them. Don't wait until you have a feeling. Oftentimes, the feelings actually follow the actions. 
Agape, love one another. That's the commandment. That's the standard. And immediately, if you're aware of what Scripture is really calling you to do, to have a Christ-like love for one another, we're faced with a problem. Because if you're at all self-aware of your own tendencies, we know how selfish we are, how selfish I am. The Bible says to love one another without conditions, without limits, and immediately our selfishness comes out. And if you know me, you know that I'm all about, like, I'm a maximizer. I, I idolize efficiency. I want the best deal. I want the best bang for the buck. I want my return on investment. That's how I shop. That's sort of how I negotiate. We look around, we negotiate, we try to get the best deal for us, and as long as it's a good deal for us, then we stay in. And if it's not a good deal, then we get out. But the problem is that we apply that to our relationships, we call these consumer relationships, where you're in it always asking, what's in it for me? It's about using rather than serving. And the second that person is not giving you what you expected, you withdraw and the feelings aren't there, we bail out. Ultimately, it's about take, and we know selfishness is a cancer of relationships. We think about ourselves a whole lot. And nowadays, you see people trying to use the Bible to even justify their selfishness. They'll quote verses like Romans 13.9, which ends with this idea of you should love your neighbor as yourself. I've had this quoted to me, especially when I was a youth pastor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this verse is quoted... It's a quote of the Old Testament in Leviticus and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, even Jesus, and they all quote this verse. It's the royal law of love. And people use this to say that before I love others, I need to love myself. I need to focus on myself. But what does it mean to say when it says, as you love yourself? And John Piper, speaking about these verses, he points out that this commandment actually assumes that all of us love ourselves and we don't need to be taught to love ourselves. It's an assumption. Every person in this room, without exception, has a love affair with ourself. We don't need to be taught that. We all naturally desire to be happy and do whatever it takes to make our lives the way we want it. The Bible isn't teaching you to think more highly of yourself and then out of your rich love for yourself, you can now love others. That's not what Paul says at all. In fact, it's the opposite. We're told to think more highly of others than ourselves, to forget ourselves. It's not about us. We see an example of what it means to love in Ephesians 5 where Paul He's talking about husbands and wives, and he takes the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, and he applies it to husbands and wives. And how are husbands called to love our wives? In verse 28 of chapter 5, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Notice the phrase, no one ever hated his own flesh, but we nourish and cherishes it. We cherish it. We love ourselves, and that shows up in different ways. When we're hungry, we do what we need to do to get food for ourselves. When we're thirsty, we do what we do to get drink 
to quench our thirst. We avoid injury. We take care of our bodies. We do what we need to do to keep ourselves physically safe. And what this verse is actually saying is that make your desire to be alive, to be full, to be filled, to be content. Make your desire for your happiness the measure of your desire for other people's happiness. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seek their good in the same way you already seek your own good. The things I want, I now, with that same energy, desire for you. That's so radical. Love them as much as you love yourself. You know how much you care about yourself? Do that for others. Take care of them, nourish, and cherish as if it's you where your happiness is now tied to their well-being. Usually our happiness is tied to our bodies and hearts being nourished and cherished, but in love, your happiness is now tied to the well-being and happiness of the other. Think of the people you love most. Aren't you happy when they're happy? Sad when they're sad. Think of the people who are the most unloving, They are in their own world absolutely self-seeking and their happiness is only about their needs being met. They use, they do not serve. Our happiness is no longer self-centered, it's other-centered. You serve them, you want to meet their needs. Therefore, think about how jealousy, how wrong jealousy is. Think about rivalry. Think about how selfish that is where we want others to fail and their happiness is tied to our unhappiness and vice versa. Think about apathy and closing our hearts to others where we don't even care about the needs of others. We close our hearts to their suffering. That's the opposite of love. That's the opposite of service. Just the longer I live, the longer I'm married especially, the more I just realize I'm so selfish. And you see this all the time, especially in romantic relationships where we, even in our, we have such an ability to deceive ourselves where we can even think that we love this person, but it's really attraction and we love what they give us. We love ourselves. We love the dream that they fulfill in our lives. We love they meet the need they meet for us. And for some couples, we need to ask, do you actually love that person or do you love yourself? We are so selfish, and it's not just me, it's not just us, it's a universal problem. Seven billion people in the world, and every one of them contains selfishness in them, where even famous atheists like Richard Dawkins, he admits, he believes that the world has a selfishness gene. When the Bible's explanation of that is that we're sinners, we have sin in us, we have the flesh, we are obsessed with the self, we love ourself, we are too self-aware, we are too self-important. It's all about us. And so when the Bible tells us to love one another as Christ loved us or with agape love, John is aware there's a problem here. He says love doesn't come from us. We're selfish, but love comes from God. And here's the key that enables us to love. God is love. And he teaches throughout this letter, and especially in this passage, he interestingly, he brings up constantly, and I haven't talked about this, this idea of the Trinity. 
He's talking to ordinary believers here, and he's going to teach them the Trinity. Think about God. Know who God is. He is love. And he brings up the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's a complexity to God. We're not simple monotheists. We're Trinitarians where we believe there's one God that exists in three persons. All three persons are equally God, and yet there is one God. There's mystery there. And that's how God could be loved. Because if God was only one person, who was he loving this entire time before creation? Was he loving himself? We don't usually say that's a good quality. Did God create us because he needed someone to love because he was bored? No, he already had a community within himself. Jesus was with God. God was with Jesus. The Holy Spirit was there enjoying and serving one another. And 2,000 years ago, the early church described the Trinity as the divine dance. They're in step. They're in complete step with one another. They're moving at the same pace. They're, they're of one mind. Each person of the Trinity circles around the other, pouring out love. They are three, yet they are one. It's a little embarrassing to me now. It's like I don't even recognize the guy that would have done this. But like 10 years ago when me and my wife were engaged, I really wanted to dance at my wedding. And so we took dance classes. And I don't even remember what it was. In the end, it ended up just being a little square dance, right? Like that's what we did at our wedding. We paid for like lessons. I know, right? If you know me, you're like, Pat doesn't dance, right? I'm, but I actually wish my secret like... You know, dream when I was young, I wish I could have been that guy that like bust a move when you go out onto the dance stage and so confidently dance. I really admire you guys that do that. And especially when you see people that can move in step with each other. We call that choreography. And that word choreography, and by the way, at our wedding, literally we just sort of stood there and swayed. So I was a failure at that, okay? Because I was actually too embarrassed to actually try to apply what we did in our dance class, okay? But it's amazing where even a little square, like swaying, square dance stressed me out because I was like, it's really hard for two to move as one. It's really hard for two to be one. And that's what we see in the Trinity, complete threeness as one. And... The early church described the Trinity as the perichorio. That's the idea, the Latin term to describe the Trinity. That's where we get the word choreography. I'm always amazed when I could see not one, not two, not three, but teams dancing in complete step with one another. That's the goal of any relationship. Because anyone can train, and maybe they could do that physically, they can move in step with one another, but when you're spiritually one, when you're emotionally one, and in marriage, you're physically one, you're financially one, you're psycho psychologically one, you're just all of that, when you can be two who are one in the church, when we as a community, we are many, there's a complexity, and yet we could be one. That's a beautiful thing, and we see that in the Trinity. The Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, the Spirit glorifies the Son. This divine dance has been going on for all eternity, three as one, constantly moving around one another, centering their interests around one another, desiring the interests of others ahead of their own. That creates a divine dance that is the God who is love. God is not like us. We are selfish. 
but God is love. He doesn't love us because we love him. He doesn't love us because we are lovable. We rejected him. We didn't love him. But he first loved us. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing lovable about us. In any counseling I do with dating couples and in our premaritals, we'll talk about questions. You know, naturally you just ask your friends, oh, you're dating someone, you're in a relationship with someone. Like, why do you like them? Why do you like them? What do you like about them? And they'll say, oh, she's pretty or she makes me feel good or he, he's kind, he's good-hearted. And so our love is in response to the loveliness of that person. We love in response But God's love is free, it's uncaused, it's undeserved. God is love. And it's not like any love in this world. God loves because he loves. He loved us first. Because God is love, he can just love. And it's hard to even make sense of that for us because we only know how to love in response. He did not respond to us. And thankfully, John doesn't just tell us an abstract truth that God is love, but he gives us a concrete picture of what that looks like. Like, What does that mean? God is love. That's such a fuzzy, abstract idea. But he makes it concrete in the person of Jesus in verse 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And quoting one of my favorite pastors, Alistair Begg, he said, God looked down on humanity and said, now I'm going to show humanity that I am love. How am I going to do it? I'll send my son, I'll send my boy, I'll send Jesus so that the world might be able to touch him, might be able to see him, might be able to hear him, might be able to follow him, and in observing him, discover, discover that I, God, am love. Even a child can get this. A child can picture Jesus as he moved around, as he touched the untouchable, as he took children and held them on his knee. You want to know what God is like. You want to know and see that he's love. Look at Jesus. He is too gentle, he's too loving, he's too humble and too selfless for him to be an ordinary man. It's not like Jesus looked down from the cross or from heaven thinking, oh, how lovely these people are, just my type of people. I think I'll die for them today. But out of love, it was love that motivated the Father to send his Son into the world He sent his son to be the savior of the world. And the spirit, the spirit who's not about his own self-interest, he says, look at the son, look at the son. He's pointing us constantly in scripture. Look at what Jesus has done. The father has sent the son to be the savior. God loved us. He agape loved us. How did he do that? He gave up his son, his one and only son, what was most precious to him, He did not spare his one son, but emptied heaven and sent him into the world. He stopped at nothing to love you and to bless you. The love of the Father wasn't just a feeling, but 
It was an action, and he, lo he loved us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We don't use that word very much, but it's important. We need to understand what the Father and the Son did for us. Jesus propitiates or he satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf, the anger of God, the reflex of the holiness of God towards our sin. Hopefully your Bible uses that word propitiation. If not, get a new Bible or a Bible to compare it to at least. It's a biblical word. Our sin was reckoned to Christ, accounted to Christ. He was being cursed. The wrath of the Father was being poured out on Christ, our sin bearer, our sacrificial lamb, our substitute. The love of God gave up what was most precious to him for an undeserving, unlovable people. And so we can have confidence, assurance, security, in the love of God because it's not just been told to us, it's been displayed and demonstrated to us. We have reason to believe that God is love. We can know it. We can be assured of it. And so John gives us the command, love one another, but love is not natural to us. It's from God who is love, and he showed his love to us through the cross. And now again in verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And it's as if John is saying, how can we be selfish when we look at the cross? No one who has seen the cross can go back to a life where they think it's all about them. Think about all the reasons you have to not love one another and put them before the cross and see if any of those reasons still stand. God showed his love by reaching out and reaching down, sending his son to those who are sinful and needy, and he takes hold of them and brings them to himself. And we can know that the love of God is being perfected in us. When we do the same, we reach out, we draw others in. That's the evidence that we know the love of God. You bring others in and share the blessings that you have received through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says the love of God controls us or compels us in such a way that we look at others no longer with fleshly eyes as the world would look at them, but we look at them as ambassadors of Christ. And God will make his appeal to the world through us to be reconciled to God. We call them to be reconciled to God. I want to reach out and bring others into the love of God so that the love of God may be complete in me. Look at those who are hardest to love in your life. Look at your parents, your mom and your dad. Look at your roommates. Look at them with a new light to love them with the love of Christ. And the result, we see it in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This phrase, no one has ever seen God, it also shows up in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 18. And the question there and the question here is, if no one has ever seen God, how can someone know God? The answer in John's Gospel is that they can know God because the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus revealed who God is so that we can know him. 
But Jesus is not here anymore. He's not walking the streets. He died, was buried, rose again. He ascended into heaven. Now he's actually at the right hand of the Father. He's not around. So how is the world going to see God? What's the answer in John's epistle? The people are to see God as they come into this room, when they sit with us, when they fellowship with us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Quoting Alistair Begg again, he says, The invisible God is made visible in the lives of his children as they love one another. The invisible God is made visible in the lives of his children as we love one another. When we love one another, we present a powerful testimony of our loving God to the world. Christian fellowship and love for one another is persuasive. Let me speak pastorally and just directly to our congregation for a little bit. You know, Agape love assumes, presumes messiness. It assumes a cost, a commitment. You only need commitment for things that are hard. It assumes endurance, suffering, and service. You're going to have to sacrifice to meet the needs of others. And sometimes the feelings won't be there. And you give and you give and you're committed but sometimes the feelings will follow where the next thing you know, your heart is tied to others. It's when you're in pain. It's when there's messiness. It's when you're in suffering. It's when everything in you wants not to love. That is what really reveals and deepens our faith. We've had a hard year. Many of you have had very hard years, personally and as a church, and I don't know if messiness will ever be gone, but I really think it's a miracle that we are where we are. It's a miracle that you are where you are. It's the Spirit. That is evident when we love one another in our up and down faith and our weaknesses and we still fight to love one another and commit ourselves to one another. Or even in our imperfect efforts and they will always be imperfect. We're here. And the Spirit Reminds us of the cross, and the cross has been shown to be important to us. It's not just something that we say, but it's demonstrated in the messiness of the church. And in the church, you will see the ugliness of man. You will see such ugliness, but then you also have the opportunity to see all the beauty of the church. And it's in the pain where grace is hard to find, and it's in the pain where grace is hard to give. And this command to love one another, if we're honest, when we come and we see the messiness of one another in this world, it feels so impossible, doesn't it? 
it feels like an impossible, overwhelming standard. And it would only be possible when we come to the end of ourselves and long to have a miracle done in us by Christ, to have a miracle that happens in me and in you where we are enabled to love one another beyond our natural capacity. None of us have God's love perfected in us. This passage assumes that. And it's a process for all of us. Love is being perfected in us. It's assuming it's going to be hard. And as we pursue perfection, what really matters is the direction. No one is perfected in God's love from the start, but if God's love invades our lives, it will invade the lives of others around us. Otherwise, it's not yet complete in us. We have not reached where he wants us to reach in our lives, but in all the messiness and all the ugliness of society, of the world, of the church, what I see is that love has grown. Love is being perfected. And it's hard for us to see, but when I talk to outsiders, when I talk to people who visit, when I see people that are, maybe they just come and visit our church, oftentimes they see something in the messiness and it's attractive, it's persuasive. And it's always going to be It's always going to be messy, awkward, uncomfortable. But we love one another in the midst of pain, and that's the Spirit's work. And I'm very thankful for the depth of faith, the development of faith, the refining fire that has trained many of you in righteousness. And where we fall short, we remember it's, It is a big deal. We should come before God because it's God's glory at stake. It's not just like me and my own issues. The gospel testimony is at stake in how we love one another. It's not an individual thing, not just a church thing. It's a God's glory thing. It's our testimony to the world that is at stake with how we love one another. You know, John started this section off in the section on God's love in chapter 3, and he says, lift up your eyes. See the love of God that has been lavished on us as children of God, and that is what we are. And when the love of God is being completed or perfected in us, where we reach out to others, it has this other side effect where perfect love casts out fear. And this is relevant because I think in our guilt-ridden society, in our honor-shame type of culture, many of us still approach God as if he's our judge. Therefore, he is unapproachable because of our sin. You understand mentally that you've been forgiven, you're justified, but you're so aware of your blemishes and flaws and sins that you only feel like an inevitable failure all the time. In verse 17 through 18, I'll close with this. says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But when we walk in love, when we're being perfected, or love is being perfected in us, it frees us where we don't come to God as our tyrant, as our judge, as our enemy. We come to him as our father. And we go into his presence like no one else can with confidence and boldness. We don't come with fear, feeling worthless, feeling condemned, or a constant sense of failure. We get our eyes off our shortcomings. We see the love of God in Christ. The Father is pleased. Is that hard for you to accept? The Father is pleased. And what would please him the most is to trust him when he says you're his child, that he loves you. And approach him with boldness like only a child can do. There is a day of judgment coming, a separation of believers from unbelievers, but believers can be assured, we can be confident, we can know, we don't have to worry whether he'll condemn us. Will he be pleased with us? Because John says, as he is, speaking about Christ, as Christ is, so are we now, meaning he loves us as he loved Christ. He accepts us as he loved Christ. He is pleased with us as he loved Christ, and we don't need to be afraid of judgment. We can have confidence where even in our imperfect efforts to please him, we don't need to be afraid because of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson again points out that if I am a child, he'll look at the poor scribbles of my life, my imperfect works. He will look at the picture of Christ that was so poorly drawn and painted in our Christian walk, and he will say, my child, my child, I see what you've been wanting to paint. You've been wanting to paint Jesus and portray Jesus in your life, and he'll be delighted in the imperfect gift that we've given to him because we know his love toward us is the love of a father. And the love of the father drives out fear. And John understands this. He's excited for this. He understands the implications of this. If God sent his son to be the savior, and by faith, if he is my savior, then I can rely on this God every moment of my life. I know we know this, but do we know this? Do we rest in this? Where it frees you from fear. His perfect love loved us when we didn't love him. We, in our imperfect love, only love those who are we deem lovable. His perfect love will enable us to love beyond our natural capacities. I know, I am confident, I can be assured that he is a God who will pursue me and is dedicated to bless me and he will stop at nothing. He's already proven that in the cross. 
Day by day, we rest in the love that God has for us. We trust in the love of God. We have confidence that in all the twists and turns, the ugliness and the darkness, the ups and downs, and all the different seasons of life, He loves me, and His perfect love will work out for the, all things for the good of those who love Him. We love because He first loved us. Are you resting in his perfect love? If you're not sure of it, look back on his past record of faithfulness. If you're having a hard time seeing that in your life, look back at scripture. Look back in the gospel. For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him give you all things? He is our father, not our judge. You are his child. You have his perfect love. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard to love one another when we come face to face with our selfishness, our self-absorption, our self-love. we recognize that on our own we just cannot obey this commandment. But we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to do a miracle in our hearts that you would prompt us to love that person that is so hard to love. to love one another in all the messiness and brokenness of our sin. To be melted by your love for us. I pray, we pray, that your perfect love would cast out fear. And instead of coming before you with condemnation or timidity, afraid, insecure, we would approach the throne of grace. We would approach our King, our Father, with boldness, confidence, assurance, and joy. And it would be our salvation that carries us. That by your grace, we would be carried along. And so free us from ourselves, Free us to forget ourselves, to be consumed for the good of others and the glory of Christ. Help us in this. We need you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.